0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed, and what that means for those who are in the practice areas. On today's show, we're discussing life at a large law firm with two partners from well-known Wall Street law firms who are also both known for setting the pace in their industry. Joining me are Evan Chesler a litigation partner at Corvaff, Swain & Moore, who served as the firm's chairman between 2013 and 2021, and Bob Jifra, the co-chair of Sullivan & Cromwell, who is also a litigator. Gentlemen, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Good to see you, Stephanie.
0: You too. So the first question that comes to my mind, for someone who is in law school or thinking about law school and is interested in having a career like yours, What's like the one piece of advice you would give them besides working very hard? Who's most senior? Who wants to take this one first? I think you
2: can go first on that one. Okay. Well, other than, other than working hard, this may not be the best answer to tell a young person, but I would tell them that their work, their, their work and their family should be the two things that occupy all of their time because it's a corollary to working hard, but they are unlikely to have enough time to do a third thing extremely well. And it's very important that they do well on the family side as well as on their career side i found that if one is is not going smoothly it has a very bad effect on the other and i think those two are significant enough challenges that they would occupy the attention and and efforts of most competent people and that's what they should do
1: yeah i agree 100 percent with what evan just said i mean i see people when they have you know complicated family situations it obviously affects their work I think in terms of, you know, to be a successful lawyer, picking the right mentors or having the right luck in who your mentors are is just incredibly important. Because one of the things I think that's great about, my father was a lawyer. And so when I was growing up, you know, he was a litigator actually, and he would take me to baseball games and he'd be reading through his deposition transcripts, getting ready for trial. And then he would talk about the trials he was doing. And, you know, I sort of grew up with being a lawyer. And so I sort of knew what I was getting in, into, and I think having really good mentors is important because this is a profession where really one generation hopefully does train the, the the next. And I was very lucky with having you know just fantastic mentors, and obviously working hard is important. And the other thing that I think is important is you've got to like it. I always when when I hear you know young lawyers like I don't like my job, well then maybe you should do something else because I've always I've liked it you know from day one. I liked it from when I got to law school. I liked it when I was a law clerk. I've liked it at Sullivan and Cromwell all these years. You know, sometimes you get frustrated. But I've always, you know, loved being a lawyer. And I think that's, you know, people do well with things that they love doing. And so if you have the right mentors who love what they're doing, and then they pass on that love to you, I think it makes a big difference.
0: I think what you just said, Bob, is really interesting. If you don't like your job, maybe you should do something else. I mean, part of this is probably on the shoulders of the media and maybe is overblown. But I mean, you do hear a lot about large firm associates who don't like their jobs. And I'm not saying that's the case at your firms, but you you hear that a lot. Does that give you pause? Or I mean, what do you think when you hear that?
1: I mean, look, I always worry that the profession is changing and is different than it was even, like I started about 30 years ago. And I was fortunate when I was young, I got to do a lot of depositions. I got to do a lot of trials I got to run my own cases. The cases have become bigger and things have become maybe slightly more bureaucratized than they were 30 years ago. But I think that you know, a talented young lawyer who really wants to you know, do what, you know, what Evan and I do can get that kind of training at a big law firm and just have to you know, have the right mentors, work on the right cases, not get frustrated you know, when things are not perfect. I mean, I think there's a lot more information out there now than there was when we were younger. I mean, when I was in law school, the American lawyer had just started. Now, you know, there's information about law firms that's ubiquitous. And, you know, there's a tendency on the part of the press to sort of, you know, sort of portray, you know, big firm life as being, you know, something— it's actually not such a bad life (laughs) when you actually look at it. I always, I always, I always say to myself, you know, so many nerdy people have done extremely well, you know, through good times and bad. You know, my grandfather, when he came to the United States on the papers at Ellis Island, it said his profession was peasant. And, uh, you know, in a couple of generations, we did pretty well. My father was a lawyer. (laughs) I'm a lawyer. My both of two of my, two of my three children, I think, easily could be lawyers and you know I think it's a pretty good job when you actually think about it because it gives you a lot of opportunity. I always tell people if you have a choice between, you know, when when, you, when after for graduate school, I think a law degree is a really good degree to have. I think getting a law degree and an MBA can be really good to have. But there's a lot of people who have done quite well who had law degrees.
0: So when you are in times of your job is stressful and maybe frustrating, what are some ways to find joy so that you bring out the best in yourself? Let me just say that, that all
2: jobs have frustrating moments. But if you love what you do, as Bob and I do, the, the rewarding moments overcome the frustrating moments. And one of the things that I've always believed about being a trial lawyer is that you have to be at your best when things are at their worst. When everybody's running for the exits, you have to run toward the fire. That's what trial lawyers do, at least those who are successful. So I've always, you know, it's always tense. Uh, We Bob and I deal with cases that involve people's careers, their reputations, their fortunes, as well as those of the companies for which they work. So it's always very intense and very stressful. If you're not, to go back to something Bob said before, if you're not happy doing that, then go to dental school or, you know, play golf, do something else. And so I find I just take the frustrating moments as part of the job. I don't need to run off and, and uh, do yoga exercises to get over the tension of it. I'm after four decades of doing this that I'm just used to it. And it's I take the good side of it as overcoming by orders of magnitude uh, the bad side.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think one of the great things about being a lawyer and the mistake that the, the, the difference between the really good lawyers and maybe the less good lawyers. I was at a memorial service at a funeral, actually, for Bernie Nussbaum, who was one of the great lawyers in New York. And someone made the point that one of his really good skills was when people thought it was really bad and things were dark and you were going to lose the case, he would keep pressing forward. And he said, more often than not, he'd press forward and he'd get to a great result. And I think the thing that I've learned as I've gotten older look, you don't control everything when you're a lawyer. You don't control your clients. You don't control the judges. You don't control the facts. You don't control the law. But the one thing you can do is try to make the best out of the hands you've been dealt. And, you know, I've, I've had experiences in the last week where I was kind of pretty frustrated with the way things were going. And I just sort of took a deep breath and kind of sort of thought to myself, okay, what are my options? What can we do? How do we make this better? And how do we just keep, you know, going forward? And I think you have to have that, you have to have a sort of an optimistic personality, I think, because you always have to think things are going to turn out, you know, okay. And I've had cases where, you know, we lost, we lost, we lost, and then finally we won. And that's probably the most satisfying wins of all. Because the case where you feel like you're going to, you know, you're, you're losing, 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 and you think you're in the right and you finally win, that's where all the hard work really pays off. The, the younger generation, I do worry. I mean, like, and I'm sure people thought that about us when we were younger. This is not a job for people who are wanting, you know, instantaneous gratification. I think if you work in a tech company and you, you know, hit the jackpot on terms of like what thing you want to do. And it turns out you can become a billionaire. I mean, we had sort of amusing, looking back on my career, Peter Thiel, who's a multi-billionaire, was an associate who I knew and worked with. Joe Tsai, who I believe is the number two person in Alibaba and owns the, you know, the Brooklyn Nets and is a multi-billionaire, was also an associate. He was a tax associate. So they went off and did something and kind of just, you know, it worked out. It's, and they became extremely wealthy. But it's sort of a different personality than someone who wants to sort of be a lawyer and sort of loves the craft of being a lawyer.
0: Is that how you kind of know if a young lawyer has it or not, if you can see from your own experiences that he or she loves it, even when it's frustrating or scary?
2: The metric I've used is the difference between people for whom being a lawyer is what they do and people for whom being a lawyer is who they are. When you meet somebody who defines themselves in terms of being a lawyer, and there are lots of young people who do, they have a different, they present themselves differently. If it's just a job, then the frustrations will ultimately get to them and the long hours and the hard work will ultimately diminish, if not eliminate their enthusiasm. But if being a lawyer is part of who they are, it's part of their identity. I'm a, I'm a grandfather. I am a father. I'm a husband. I was (laughs) until my parents passed away, a son. I'm a brother, and I'm a Cravath lawyer, as Bob is a Sullivan and Cromwell lawyer. It's part of how I define myself. And the young people who I found have succeeded, for the most part, are people who, who absorb into their DNA being a lawyer. It's part of how,
1: how they view themselves. And those are the people who tend to be most successful. The thing about being a lawyer, which is sort of interesting, particularly if you're a litigator, you know, obviously you can do extremely well working in a firm like Cravath or Sullivan and Cromwell. But to some extent, the most rewarding thing about the job is solving a really complicated problem. If you can, you know, win a really big case, you know, when the jury is out, there's probably nothing more nerve wracking than waiting for a jury in a case because you just never know. You may have some sense as to how it's going, but you just never know. And then when they come back and if you win, it's very, very satisfying. It's like, you know, winning the World Series even when you get a decision. Now, in the old days, you'd get the decisions, you know, they'd be mailed to you or maybe you'd get a fax. Now, sometimes I'll be in the back of a taxi and all of a sudden there'll be some decision that will come down from some court on an ECF filing. And I just get really, really happy about it. Uh, Now, I happen to be one of those people who really doesn't like to lose. So I get more kind of worked up about losing than I do winning. And I can remember one case, maybe about three or four years ago, where we had gotten a class decertified and then the district court judge reversed the magistrate's decision and I was buying shoes of all things. And I look at my my iPhone and I see this decision come down and I'm like, oh, and I just took a deep breath. And then over the next two or three years, we've kind of worked ourselves out of that hole in that case. And that's kind of that's kind of what I do, you know? And that's what I like doing. And, I, and I, it's funny, I often will talk to my wife and kids and they say, well, could you have done anything else? look, I played golf in college. I still try to play golf. And Evan is right about the three, you can only do three things well. Fortunately, my son is really into golf. So I'm able to do the, the family and the golf together. And he's trying to be a good golfer. But, um, you know, I never was going to be a PGA Tour pro. I would have probably been a teaching pro at Chelsea Piers. And so this was kind of like what I was born to do. <laughs> so I'm happy about it.
0: Did you know that as a young lawyer?
1: I think so. I mean, like I said, I really grew up with it. I mean, you know, from the t- my father was a lawyer. I remember going to Little League games. He'd be reading deposition transcripts. I had a very good idea about what was involved. I, I went with him to court. I mean, literally, you know, I was seven or eight years old. I went with him to court and I watched, you know, what went on. And so I had a, you know, he did not work at a big firm like, you know, like Sullivan and Cromwell or Cravath, but, you know, I sort of grew up with it. And so I think it's sort of in my DNA. I mean, Evan made a really great point, which is that the people who love being a lawyer, they are going to be good lawyers. The people who, you know, they're frustrated, it's not the right career choice, they're never going to be happy. And you only live once, so you might as well do something that makes you happy.
0: Yeah, that old expression, he or she is a lawyer's lawyer. I mean, that's, like, that really sums up what you guys are saying.
2: Yeah, it does. Bob said several times his dad was a lawyer, which is great. I, I was the first person in my family to go to college, let alone law school. So I I
0: remember you saying your parents weren't even sure you should be a lawyer. Maybe you should get a government job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My mother always thought the best job in the world was working for the Postal Service because she got a pension and they never fired anybody. I went to, <laughs> I went to college after my junior year of high school. I never got a high school diploma. <laughs> and uh, My mother was terrified about it. And I came home after my freshman year of college. I came uh, to live with my folks for the summer. And my mother very proudly came out of her room and handed me uh, an envelope. And I opened the envelope, and it was a high school diploma for me. She had gone to the high school where I was a student and persuaded the principal to give me a diploma. Now, it was a general, what New York at the time was called a general diploma, not a regents diploma, because I hadn't taken my senior uh, classes and my senior regents exams. So it was the kind of diploma you get if you, you know, do a GED or something. It was the, the basic diploma. But I said, why did you do this? I've just, you know, made the dean's list in college. I'm doing very well. I finished you. She said, because if things go badly without a high school diploma, you can't get a job at the Postal Service. And now you're covered. <laughs> now you're safe. So you know, my mother only passed away a year or so ago at 102. And I we had a joke in our family when you know when things were going hard badly in, in a case or whatever, I'd say to her, and I had a terrible day in court today, but I kept thinking, I don't have to worry because if I need it, I can get a job at the postal service. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but but to go back to the point, having mentors is really, really important. And and Bob was extraordinarily fortunate to have a dad who was a mentor as well as those at Sullivan and Cromwell. But I had some great mentors at Cravath, and it is critical to your career. If somebody doesn't kind of put their arms around you and give you a big professional hug, this can be a hard field to plow.
1: You know, Stephanie, I think the thing that I think makes Cravath and Sullivan and Cromwell different than a lot of other law firms is we are places where people basically spend their careers and still to, you know, to this day. And when you start at a law firm and you sort of see, you know, you sort of get mentored by people and you develop that loyalty, mentoring becomes part of the DNA of the law firm. And it's not a place where it's sort of, you know, more of a franchise operation that you sort of see in some other law firms. And, you know, I look back on my own career. I mean, Vince de Blasi, who passed away a few years ago, great mentor. John Warden ran the litigation group. These people took me under my, you know, under their wing when I really didn't know anything and gave me, you know, huge opportunities, you know, taking depositions in big cases, trying cases when I was an associate, arguing cases in court and you know they recognized the thing that i think makes krevath and Sullivan and cromwell great law firms that the people are the assets and the only way to make the assets you know you, you when you when you when you train associates and mentor associates you're basically strengthening the firm for the long haul and like we just had a partners lunch today we have them on wednesdays and one of our um you know esteemed partners bill williams was there and he's probably in his 80s he comes to the lunches and we were making one of the topics was Russian sanctions. And I made a joke about how, well, fortunately, you know, 30 years ago, we made the correct decision to not open a Moscow office. And Bill made the point that, well, he wrote the memo recommending against opening a Moscow office. And that's kind of what's great about, you know, firms that have been in existence as long as ours have, where people have literally, you know, it's like your family almost. I mean, people I work with are some of my best friends. People I you know, play golf with, they know my kids, I know their kids. And that's, it's sort of unusual. It's sort of quaint in a way.
0: And do you think that's because a big piece of what all of the partners have in common and probably many of the associates is they really love being lawyers and it defines them?
2: I think, it's, I think that is a big part of it. But it is also, you know, being, you have to be an institutionalist to do what Bob and I do. You know, Bob is now the co-chair of his law firm, and you know I was the presiding partner of my firm and the chairman of my firm in combination for 15 years. You can't do that and practice law full time as Bob and I did throughout those response those administrative responsibilities, unless you're an institutionalist, and you need to believe in the institution. And so I think part of it, part of what creates that family that Bob mentioned is a common love of the law but part of it is being part of a great institution when you're a believer in institutions and the and the benefits that they can confer upon people and it really does become like a family i mean i'm you know to this day i'm the trustee for the children of three or four of my partners who were older than i and who entrusted to me the responsibility of making sure that their children were well taken care of uh, you know financially i mean that's that's an extraordinary thing to find in an institution that that people who work together will entrust each other with that kind of personal responsibility for their families. Uh, that says a lot about the institution. I
1: mean, these law firms, I mean, like I, I just before today, I looked up, you know, Cravath, at least the name, the, the original firm goes back to 1819. Sullivan and Cromwell, I guess is a little younger, 1879. We're at 143 years. And I love mentioning that to people. You know, when you think about, you know, if you had if been dropped into New York City, in 1910, okay? Cravath and Sullivan and Cromwell were probably among the best law firms in New York City. You were dropped into New York into New York City in, you know, 1950s, same thing. 1970s and now, same thing. And those institutions have very strong cultures, and the culture is a real asset of the firm and it allows it to, you know, survive pandemics and wars and recessions and all the things that can happen, 9/11. Which actually you know, put us out of our office for a couple of weeks, someone like an Evan or even myself, you could go to work in a law firm where they would pay crazy money, you know, I have no interest in that. I never had any interest in it. It was never attractive to me. I really believed in the firm, and I like the firm. I like the people in the firm. I like the people on our administrative staff, uh, many of whom have been here for as long as I have, and you know that's sort of it's a place where You know, you don't have a few people trying to take as much as they can, where everybody is really pulling for the whole and the greater good because of the benefits that really accrue to everyone. And that's what makes firms like S&C and Cravath, I think, fairly unique. And, you know, in, in a world that's increasingly where law firms are becoming, you know, kind of more cutthroat businesses, almost like investment banks.
0: Let's pause on that. So we can take our quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk to the two of you about associate life from when you were associates, as you were the same firms as you are now, as well as uh, the associate pay, which is always a big topic. We'll be right back.
2: If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.
0: And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, we're talking about life at a big law firm with Evan Chesler, a Cravath, Swain & Moore partner, and Bob Gifra, the co-chair of Sullivan & Cromwell. Gentlemen, as you mentioned the first part of the show, you've spent your entire legal careers at your firms. When you started as associates after your clerkship, what was it like and how is it different from today? Well... I'm not sure it is very different, frankly. I mean, you know, there
2: are differences. There's a lot of technology. When I started at Cravat there, computers were big things in the basement of engineering schools. You know, there, there were no computers, there were no cell phones, there was no internet. As phones were things that were connected to walls uh, with by wires. I remember you know, you'd wait for copying from the quote Xerox room and copies would show up the next morning and they smelled like vinegar and they were wrapped around the books that were sitting on the floor to hold them, to keep them flat. So the technology has changed dramatically. That's both a good thing and a bad thing, frankly. You need to be accessible to clients every moment of the day instantaneously. You can no longer hide behind the pink message slip that would find its way to your desk and buy you hours of time to think of a clever answer. Those days are over. But in terms of the life of an associate, In the fundamentals, it really, in my view, at least hasn't changed. You were there to learn. I always tell uh, young lawyers that working at our firm is the best graduate education they could possibly get. Because you come out of law school basically learning how to think like a lawyer, but knowing how to do virtually nothing. And what we do is teach people to do useful work to actually be able to be their vo- their client's voice, to actually learn how to examine witnesses, how to conduct discovery, how to win. That's what our associates do today. And that's what I did decades ago when I was an associate. I learned my craft. I took the, the intelligence my parents gave me and the skill set that law school gave me. And I learned how to apply those two raw ingredients to the art form to the to the task of actually learning how effectively to represent clients and that's what we do for our associates today we always i always tell lawyers we only do two things at crevet we train associates and we provide the best service we can to our clients those are the only two things we do it's a very simple business model and i'm sure the same is true of s and c i
1: agree 100 evan that's exactly our business model you know it's interesting i think Looking back on my now not so short career, I'd say the technology is the big difference. And it's actually easier to be an associate now than it was, you know, say in the early 90s when I was an associate, because you have the ability because of the, you know, re- the ability to commute, do things remotely and having your, you know, iPhone and, and the like, you don't have to be in the office as much as you did. And, you know, it's it's interesting, um, over Thanksgiving, my parents, my, 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 my sister and everybody was saying, you remember when you were an associate, you went back to the office after Thanksgiving a few times. I had no recollection of doing it, but I guess in those days, you you know you had to be in the office to actually do the work because there was no internet. Uh, I mean, I think email really sort of ticked in about 1995 or so, 1996, 97. That's my best recollection. I don't think I had a BlackBerry, and that's what we called it until probably the late 90s. Is my and I think. That has made things, you know, I think better in terms of work-life balance because you don't have to literally be in the office as much. The other big change that I've seen has been, I feel like the cases have gotten bigger and maybe the stakes have gotten bigger. I don't know whether, you know, back in the day, you know, if you had a $100 million case or a $200 million case, that was a huge case. Now these cases are, you know, billions and billions of dollars. I also think that, you know, I've always prided myself on being a generalist. So not being someone who, and Evan certainly is that too, and I think that's sort of the Cravath model and the Sullivan and Cromwell model. The profession has become highly specialized and people are, you know, I'm a securities litigator, I'm a white collar litigator, I'm an IP litigator, I'm someone who does arbitrations. Well, I've done all those things. But what I've seen in the last 30 years has been, there's been a much more of an interaction between the government and civil litigation, And, you know, most of the cases that I work on now, there's always a big investigation and then, you know, add on or follow on class action litigation. Sometimes there's just a straight up commercial dispute, but things are much more complicated than they were even 30 years ago. What's interesting is as the profession has become more specialized, the really, really hard cases require someone who's sort of a quarterback who can see the whole playing field and understand, you know, how does the government piece fit with the, with the civil litigation piece and how does that maybe even impact some deal that's going on? So I think, I think, but the big thing, I think is the big change has been technology. I think we largely do the same thing we probably did 50 years ago in terms of training associates.
2: I just want to pick up on one thing Bob said about general generalists versus specialists, which, with which I very much agree. I mean, I, you know, I I view myself as someone who knows a little bit about a lot, a little bit about, you know, everything and not a lot about anything. I really don't. The only thing I know a lot about is how to try cases. And I learn what I need to know about chemistry or economics or international trade issues depending upon the case. And basically we are students as trial lawyers. We go to school. We learn the subject matter of the client's business. We learn the facts of the case. But what we're doing is applying a consistent toolkit, a consistent set of skills that we learned as young lawyers to every case. It's the same set of skills. It doesn't make a difference whether it's an, a patent case or an antitrust case. The skills are exactly the same. What different differs are the five cases that make a difference, and there always are about five cases that make a difference in every situation, and the facts. But the underlying skills of how to prepare witnesses, how to cross-examine a witness, how to make sure you found the facts that matter, Uh, Those issues are universally applicable to every case. And to go back to your earlier question, Stephanie, that we're basically teaching those skills and that hasn't changed. The technology's changed. I'd say one other thing where I may disagree a bit with Bob. I'm not sure it's easier to be an associate than it was because of technology. In some respects, it is easier. It's true you don't necessarily have to leave the dinner table on Thanksgiving to get, quote, back to the office. You can you can pick up your phone or you can pick up your iPad. That's absolutely true. But you are also accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week with people at the other end of that connection. I won't say line because they're no longer lines. They're just connections. People on the other side of that connection who expect you to be there and who get very upset if you're not. And so the time delay that, that, that earlier technologies built into the process is gone. When I send a note to associates working with me and I ask a question, I'm just as bad as the clients. I expect I'm going to get an answer in seconds, not in days. And that means they need to give me an answer. And if the worst thing in the world I can do is give me the wrong answer, it's far better to say I don't know than to purport to know something you don't know. And nobody knows everything. And so when you get a question, you're now forced to give an answer. And you're forced to give an answer on an accelerated time frame because of technology and that makes it harder so i think technology is a mixed blessing
1: yeah i I agree with that 100 because what i worry about now is that technology has sped up the practice of law and clients want instant answers no one has the time to reflect you know you'll get an email from someone at 10 o'clock at night and they expect an answer back in 20 minutes, and in the old days, we would sit and discuss, you know, what was the right answer, and then type up a memo, and then the memo would be faxed to someone, Uh, and probably things were a little bit done a little bit more, there was more consultation and more thought going into it. I think, you know, I agree with you, Evan, I can think back when I was an associate, even when I was a young partner, I can remember going on vacation for two weeks uh, once, and I think I got one phone call from the office in two weeks. Now I go on vacation. I'm looking at the damn phone every hour. And I've had experiences, you know, a couple of times where I was having dinner and I like I purposefully did not have my phone with me for two or three hours. And the client literally like thought something had happened to me because I hadn't responded as quickly. And there's almost a, there, there is a so I'd say the technology on the one hand has freed us from having to run back to the office after Thanksgiving dinner. But it has sped up the job and made it, you know, a little bit more like a being on a trading floor almost because there's just constant, you know, constant questions and the need for constant answers. Yeah, I agree with
0: that. Well, how do you have, for partners at your level, how do you have boundaries with clients? Because you're <laughs> well, you're I, always supposed to serve the client, right? I can't but wait for
2: Bob's we, answer because I don't have any boundaries. Yeah,
1: I don't really. I mean, I think it's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I think... I don't know. I think, I think things can be better on the weekends. Although I can tell you, I've been at golf tournaments that my son is playing in and I'll be there on the phone conducting business, you know, watching him play golf. And then if he you know, you're watching to see like, will he make the putt? Will he not make the putt? And I'm on the phone trying. And it's like, my brain is being, you know, on the one hand, I'm like a father. I want him to make the putt. And on the other hand, I'm trying to give legal advice to someone. But yeah, I think that's a problem. And I think one of the problems in this business is the more successful you are, the more the demands become. And people always wanna know, what do you think? You know, the other thing is because of communication, and I think Kravath and s are like this. s is very much like this. Our firm, I think more than half of our clients are non-US clients. We have a lot of clients outside the US in different time zones. And so, you know, when you have people in, you know, I don't do that much in Asia, I do a lot in Europe. And that five or six hour difference, you know, you, you can be getting up, And this is one problem with the whole Zoom thing. I've had a problem recently where people will start a phone call on Zoom at seven o'clock in the morning. And I'm obviously set up in my apartment or my weekend house to do Zoom calls. And then, you know, I never get to the office until noon because I've been on Zoom calls the entire morning because the clients are sort of, it's the afternoon for the clients. So that's that's another tricky aspect of this.
2: Yeah. My wife my wife asks me sometimes whether a particular day is going to be one of those days, and that's our family code for a day that begins with the European clients because it's the middle of their day when it's very early, and a day that ends with my West Coast clients because it's the end of my day and it's the middle of their day. And I have many days where I start at 7 in the morning with clients in Europe and end at 9 at 10 o'clock at night with clients in California. And that's, again, a function of the technology.
0: And and does that also kind of tie in to what you both said earlier? It's important for you to try to have a good relationship with your family. Also, being a lawyer is how you define yourself. So a good relationship with a family might include that your spouses understand that when it's go time, it's go time
1: my wife is very, very, you know, understanding of this. And she sort of, her father ran a big engineering company and traveled a lot. And so I think she sort of understands it. And she, you know, she's, you know, I I actually try, like I've been on trial and I've tried to have the family come out and visit me when I'm on trial, if it's in a nice place. And you always try to figure out how you can sort of balance everything. You know, one thing we haven't talked about, which I think is really important, but it's related to the point that Evan was raising and you've raised Being healthy and being in good shape and and sort of taking care of yourself, if you want to do this at a really high level is important. Like, you know, I don't drink very much. I exercise as much as I can. I watch what I eat. I try to get at least some sleep. I get a checkup, you know, every year religiously. And I think that's important because, you know, there's almost an athletic aspect of doing, particularly trial work where you have to have a lot of, you know, adrenaline and a lot of energy. And so when I'm on trial, you know, particularly if it's not in New York or in a hotel someplace, I will literally go and work out in the middle of, like after the trial's over, we'll debrief after the day, we'll figure out who's doing what, and then I'll disappear for an hour and go work out. Because, you know, that's so important. And, and, you know, you're not a professional athlete, but there's an element to doing this job at a high level where you have to have a lot of energy, you have to have a clear mind, and people, who you know, who are not healthy, who are tired, who are irritable. You know, I find that, you know, working out is good in terms of, you know, I think both probably Evan and I are, I guarantee you are pretty good at dealing with stress because we've had to deal with a lot of it. And, you know, taking care of yourself is a very important but often underlooked key to being successful in in being, you know, doing particularly trial work, but law generally. Very true. Very true.
0: I want to go back to you saying that you're not as interrupted quite as much like with Thanksgiving or holidays, but you're still interrupted. What do you two think about remote work at large law firms? I mean, my impression is that the staff and the associates want it. Some of the partners, maybe not so much. Um, and it seems to differ on what clients are doing. So what do you ultimately think is going to happen?
1: I think we'll probably move to something of a hybrid model. I mean, we're not a very rule-bound place, even though we've been in existence for a long time. And people are, you know, you're not like checking in and checking out. I think if you're a young lawyer though, you're not gonna become a great lawyer by being mentored by a Zoom call. You have to be in conference rooms, you have to be in courtrooms, you have to be in the witness prep, you have to be in someone's office and learn how to be a lawyer. And I worry a little bit that People who started in the last two years and have basically learned Zoom lawyering will have lost something because there's something about human interaction. I mean, I will tell you, I'm, I'm sure Evan spent a lot of time thinking about this too. I've done my, unfortunately, I've had to do my share of Zoom arguments, which I really don't like doing. And, you know, when they first started, I did them sitting down. Now we have, we have a Vince de Blasi courtroom in our building. And I do it like it's in a courthouse, in a courtroom, and I put, I'm at a podium, and I much prefer that. But I'm so zoomed out, and I really don't, I think you miss a lot because you can't tell on a Zoom call what the body, you know, you can't read people as well as you can when in person. But in terms of training, I think what will happen is, and I'm almost feeling it like I, I get we find I get I track how many people are coming to the office. And, you know, more than 50 percent of our people are now back in the office in New York. Um, and I think that number will increasingly grow. And I think people will like the human interaction. Do I think think that there will be le- you know fewer people in, you know, I don't know, in the summer here on Fridays? Well, that was already starting to be here. people were not in the office as much on Fridays in the summer. And I think there'll be more of that. Or working from home, maybe sometimes on Mondays. I think you could see a little bit of that. But I think successful law firms will still, you're not going to be able to do it entirely remotely. And anybody who thinks they will, it will affect the mentoring and it will affect the quality of the work. We haven't talked about that, but the ability to walk down the hall and actually ask someone for their opinion on how to handle something in that collaborative culture, which is something that I think both Cravath and Sullivan and Cromwell have, and a lot of law firms don't is so important. And when you're not with the people and you don't know the people, I also think in terms of a partnership, you don't, you're, you're much more likely to be a business if everyone's interacting on a Zoom call than if people are actually you know meeting each other and spending time in the flesh.
0: Do you think what it might be is that for workshopping ideas and thinking about arguments to take on a brief, those will be probably be in person, but maybe for thought work, people will just go home if it's convenient. To where yeah, if you have were. to
1: write a brief, for example, right, and mm-hmm. I I did this even before COVID. If I had some big brief to write, and the brief was due, and you know it had to be done at a certain time, and maybe you know I would do it. I could easily see myself doing it in my gym shorts at home. But you know that's the kind of thing that you can do. It's sort of solitary work. But the ability to interact with people and collaborate and brainstorm, you just can't do it on a Zoom call. Now I do think that Zoom will be an important part of what goes on going forward. Like I don't do that many conference calls anymore. Everybody does Zoom calls and it's kind of good to see people and you can, but I think that, and we're looking into, for example, having Zoom rooms in our in our offices so that people can Zoom with the clients together. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll find our way, but I think the idea that we're all going to be, you know, sort of sitting at home and practicing law, I think that I, I don't think that's the way that I don't think that's the wave of the future.
2: Yeah, I, I look. I agree very much with what Bob has said. We started out earlier in our conversation talking about the importance of mentoring. You know, my principal mentor when I was a young lawyer was a guy named Tom Barr, who was the head of our litigation department. He taught me how to try cases, and most of the most important things I learned from Tom, I learned in one-on-one conversations, flying together on planes. Sitting in his office, sitting in a conference room together, sitting in some uh, war room in a trial site, God knows where. We went all around the country, and I worked for him trying cases all over the place. You don't, you can't do that remotely. They're just not substitutes for one another. And and I agree with Bob. You can you can use the technology in the post pandemic era, and God, I hope we're moving into the post pandemic era. You can use it as an additive, like doing zoom calls instead of just old-fashioned conference calls i think that is additive because you can see the people with whom you're speaking but when it becomes subtractive when it becomes uh, something that's in the place of the one-on-one relationships that build careers it's going to become a deficit for people's training and for the quality of the work and there's another piece to it and every trial lawyer who's tried any cases knows this trials are the result of teamwork there's the old guy at the front of the parade who gets credit for it but but that old guy at the front of the parade is doing a tiny fraction of the hard work that makes a difference it's 95% homework and 5% theater
1: i agree i agree 100%
2: with that 95 talking is easy. maybe it's 98% homework and 2% theater but that homework gets done by teams and people like bob and myself Spend our lives taking credit for great ideas that other people have had. That comes from teamwork. It comes from people knowing each other and trusting each other and helping each other. And you don't do that by remote technology. You, you got to live together in the trenches. The one of the, one of the strongest bonding uh, experiences, I think, that exists in any job, in any profession is being part of a trial team for years thereafter war stories are told remember when this happened remember when that happened living together and working together for weeks on end with that kind of pressure that common experience is an enormous glue that bonds people together and and i worry that that will be lost in a post pandemic world because technology and and the forces of gravity pulling people down to their lowest common denominator will overtake the you have to work at being part of a team. It's an affirmative burning of calories and you have to, you have to really work at it and the, the fruits of doing it are extraordinary.
0: Well, do you think that say five or 10 years from now for the firms that maybe decide to mostly let people stay remote, we're going to see problems with that and that they're not going to have these things you just described.
2: Well, some firms are going to do it because they are not families. They're not, the kind of institutions that Bob and I represent, they're businesses. They're like McDonald's franchises. Totally agree. You put put a name on the door, you get a bunch of people together in a building you don't really know each other and you call yourself a law firm. And I don't think they'll care. And I don't think they'll necessarily see a difference. But those lawyers on the other side of the courtroom who come from institutions with culture, and I don't mean culture in the sense of being more sophisticated. I mean a set of values, common values that people respect and adhere to will have an advantage. So I hope a lot of other firms go that way.
1: Yeah, because we'll do quite well in that environment, that's I right, think. Right. The, the, <laughs> the, the
2: <laughs> Cromwells of the world will do just fine uh, because it's a strength. A, a binding culture and teamwork are, are enormously powerful strengths.
1: And the clients actually recognize that because you know one of the things that happens in any kind of complicated situation when you've got a, a big crisis, Clients can sense when everybody is part of a team and when the people you're relying on, when you're at the, like Evan said, the top of the parade, I've got fantastic people working on these cases with me and they care just as much as I do. And the clients can sense that. And the thing people lose sight of in the legal business, uh, particularly when you're doing you know, trial work or any kind of litigation, look, the more complicated it is, the less you can look in a book to figure out what the right answer is. And the collaborative collaborative culture is critical, but there's also another piece of it. Mistakes will happen, and people who are part of a team will try to figure out what those mistakes is. There won't be covering up of mistakes. People will have this the common value of, you know, wanting to be truthful with courts and juries and not overstating things. And I think what will happen is the law firms that become like franchise operations and everything is about, you know, is is about sort of very crass economic things. And people are not really focused on things like culture and training and mentoring and putting the clients first and not having the clients be just the lawyers' clients, but the firm's clients, which we haven't talked about. I mean, Kravath and Sullivan and Cromwell have clients that go back decades. And those those clients are cultivated by generations of lawyers. And, every, and the clients know it. And we have, we have ties and connections with the clients that are far deeper than a situation where, you know, some lawyer has a relationship with the general counsel. Then the lawyer goes to another law firm trying to get more money for themselves. And, you know, ultimately, maybe that lawyer will lose a case. and Then the general counsel will go someplace else. So that's not how you build, you know, a law firm. It's how you build a bunch of siloed businesses.
0: Gentlemen, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. It's been a lot of fun. Always great thank to you. spend time with Evan. Thank you. It's been fun.
0: And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please read us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.